Welcome to the Operation Restored Warrior Podcast. We are first of all veterans helping veterans find healing and restoration through the power of Jesus. Join us as we share stories of what Jesus is doing for our nation's warriors, as we share tools and resources to empower you to a deeper relationship with Jesus, and as we introduce you to our amazing partners that are advancing the kingdom of God across the globe. And now, let's get to the show. Welcome back to the Operation Restored Warrior podcast. I'm your host, David Boddy, and my guest today spent 30 years in the Coast Guard, both as a rescue swimmer and 15 years as a special agent, ultimately retiring as a CW4. He's got a son that's in the Coast Guard. He's a husband, father, a member of the ORW team, and a good friend, John Williams. Welcome to the show. Hey, David. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, good to have you on, man. I I enjoy a lot of a lot of conversations with you. Your stories are incredible. Between being a rescue swimmer and uh, the special agent piece, you've you gotten to do some pretty cool things in your life. Yeah, it's been a uh, man. As far as the Coast Guard piece as well, uh, never thought it would go fully to thirty, but yeah, truly a uh, a blessed career, man. It was definitely uh, had its ups and downs in time, but but to make it at thirty was uh, was pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and it's been cool to see you transition pretty quickly from there to ORW, and we'll we'll get more into your story. But certainly, um, great to see you growing as a on the team and yeah. being a step into your next mission. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm super excited about it. I'm and uh, you know just like with the Coast Guard, it, it's awesome to retire. Uh, you know, my wife and I say all the time, we're not retiring from something; we're retiring to it. So it's exciting to retire to the ORW mission and just what a phenomenal. Uh, ministry and and uh, ability to serve. So yeah, just grateful for that. That's a great point you bring up. I think so often as men, we're looking forward to that point where we retire and it's like we're going to kick back yeah. on the beach, put our toes in the sand. But the reality is we need a mission. And so when we're coming yeah. to that place of retirement or moving into a different season, it is crucial that we have something we are retiring to. Like you said, that's a, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. So backing up, let's talk about how you grew up. What what kind of led you into the Coast Guard? Yeah, it's kind of weird. So I grew up in, in Southern California, just north of L.A. Uh, you know, father was LAPD and, and my mom did some work uh, with LAPD as well. And, um, you know, typical upbringing as a kid and uh, high school just wasn't my thing. I was more of a social guy than I was uh, really hitting the books and, and, and breaking down with it. Uh, older brother, younger brother. Uh, older brother's five years older. I got a little brother who's uh, 10 years younger. Uh, so grew up out there doing things kids would do. And then um, the Coast Guard was really, my whole family was Marine Corps. And I just didn't, it didn't have the drive and the pull to that. And, uh, you know, even going in the Coast Guard, we had to drive almost an hour and a half away just to get to the closest recruiter. And I'm not sure what I saw, what I um what drew me to it, you know, when I was in elementary school, my wife and I were just talking about this the other day, um, there was an accident uh, on the way to school where a kid was hit and they landed the fire department helicopter in our school playground. It was an old Bell 412. And from that point on, from sixth grade on, I was just anything to do with helicopters I was in. So that was my earliest. OK, I'm going to I want to do this rescue mission. I want to do this piece. And the Coast Guard just seemed like the perfect fit. Wow. Did, were you a strong swimmer growing up as well? 
I, re I really wasn't. Um, it's, it's kind of a weird story. You know, I didn't grow up uh, competitive swimming, not even really competitive sports, just your rec sports, just just swimming on the weekends, you know, as kids do. Hmm. Um, and so never really had a fear of the water uh, at all. And so, yeah, I uh, went to the recruiter and they show you all the promotional videos and they showed our age 65 with a guy jumping out. And I said, man, I want to do that. And he said, what, you want to be a pilot? And I said, nope, that dude just fell out of the helicopter. I want to do what he does. And and so as recruiters do, they tell you, oh, yeah, you're going to do this quickly. And he forgot about a couple of years in the mix in there. But, yeah, that was the start of it for me. So wasn't wasn't super strong physically, uh, wasn't super, definitely wasn't strong in the water. But but uh, I think mentally was able to uh, to get through it. So, yeah. Wow. So when you joined the Coast Guard, were you able to enlist like with a rescue swimmer contract or is like an option? No. So the, the Coast Guard's interesting. So I enlisted back in 1999 or excuse me, 1991, uh, on the delayed entry program as well to come right after high school. I literally graduated high school June 20th and July 29th, uh, I was headed to boot camp. And so I basically, the way it works in the Coast Guard, you go to boot camp. Some guys now have contracts. There were certain jobs that, that are critical that, that you can get even a bonus or a retention uh, for that. But the rescue swimmer rate, ASM at the time, which is aviation survivalman, um, definitely was not one. There was a, when I went through, there was about a three-year wait. So you had to make E3 after boot camp, and then you could put your name on the school list. Uh, so depending on your ASVAB scores and the whole deal. And so once I got on the list, because of the attrition rate, uh, in the school and because the classes were so small, uh, it took me about three years, uh, being a non-rate before I could actually go to school, uh, in Elizabeth city to become a rescue swimmer and an aviation survival man. Awesome. So what was that? What was that pipeline? Like the training for that? Yeah. So it was interesting. Uh, a good friend of mine still today was, uh, uh, junior officer. We were stationed in the honor guard in DC, you know, doing the ceremonies, uh, around DC, the white house, that type of thing. Um, so pretty excited as a non-rate to have a high profile job, if you will, uh, standing around, I guess as high profile as you can get. And so we trained together with just running and, and trying to get in the pool. And, and I think the best thing for me was I didn't understand what I was getting into, uh, physically, uh, and it was tough. And I knew, uh, so I did 30 years with the Coast Guard and I've never been underway on a boat. And so for me, no. I knew, <clears throat> I knew when I went to rescue swimmer school that, at that time, if you failed out, uh, you basically went underway and you went back to the fleet. And that that wasn't happening for me. So <clears throat> it was pretty tough. Um, you know, physically, I was a guy that was never first in the runs. But, you know, you gutted through it and you got it done. Uh, wasn't the most eloquent, you know, eloquent swimmer through the water, but but definitely battled through and, and got it done. And uh, it was it was challenging. It was tough. You know, and, and at that point, you know, I'm like, this is the toughest thing I've ever done in my life. But but man, I had the uh, I think one of the things that truly helped me for that is I had uh, I had proposed to my wife before I went to rescue swimmer school uh, and her father was not too keen on the military. So when I explained what I was getting ready to do, um, he wasn't too impressed, I don't think. So that was one of the drives in the back uh mm you know, that, that pushed me through that as well as, you know, I had some commitments, uh, and, and some promises that I made that I had to get through that. Yeah. That's incredible. So yeah. when you graduated, um, where did you, where was your first station? Yeah. So I went through swimmer schools here. Well, I currently live similar here in, in Camden, North Carolina. So in Elizabeth city, North Carolina, just around about 20 minutes away is where our school is. And I went through the old 
school where we didn't have our own parachute disentanglement. So we had to go to the Navy Pensacola uh, and finish up at their rescues from our school. Uh, and then I got stationed back here uh, in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And uh, so that was where I did my first four years uh, as a swimmer. I, I went to Atlantic City, New Jersey for four years after that. And then uh, down to Mobile, Alabama to the uh, rescue swimmer standardization team. Uh, where I spent my last four years as a swimmer before transitioning to the second half of my career in the Coast Guard, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What was like the most Im impactful mission you had mm -hmm. as a rescue swimmer? I'm obviously there's yeah. so many missions that you went on. You know, it, it, I was thinking back over that, and there's so many that that do stand out. Some good and some really bad, right? And some that that even drove me part of the reason why I came to ORW, some of those cases. Um, you know, I, I think back a lot of times to my very first rescue. Um, I was here in Elizabeth City, um, probably only out of school and qualified maybe a few months. And it was a fishing vessel taking on waters. Uh, the name of the vessel was the Shauna Louise here off the coast of Elizabeth City. And uh, it was about 25 foot seas. Uh, the sun was just coming up, but it was three guys on a fishing trawler that was sinking. And that was the first time that I ever got to leave the helicopter, you know, to free fall into the water to rescue somebody that wasn't in training. And I just remember, um, man, the, the first guy that I rescued was huge. And the first thing, you know, they teach you in school, these guys are going to fight you. You know, they see you as an island in the water. You're, you know, they're not specifically trying to fight you. It's just what panic and fear looks like. And I had to battle through that. Like as soon as I got, you know, here I'm excited to be in the door. I'm like a little kid. I'm excited to get a hold of this guy thinking he's going to be excited to see me. And uh, and the and the fight was on. You know, when I, when I became a swimmer, I'm a bigger fella now. But, you know, I was 6'4", 175. So I was a stick back then. And, uh but yeah, you know, the guy's inflating my uh, life support equipment and we're just battling. But what was so impactful for me with that, and I think where the crew and the camaraderie piece came in, where I knew I was in the right place, was I remember, man, these 25-foot waves and our helicopter pilot at the time, his name was Robin Cordes, he kept that H-60 where when the waves were cresting, they were breaking, our tail wheel hangs down, and it almost looked like they were getting ready to break into the door of the helicopter. I mean, he kept it right I mean, it was just awesome. And so, you know, rescuing these three guys and getting them back and, and the ability to let them out at the air station and have a discussion with them after, you know, battling through the waves. And it's funny, I remember um, the captain of the ship, you know, everybody saves different things. And so it was interesting watching these guys get out of their survival suits. And one guy I remember had like, I mean, he must have had three or four cartons of cigarettes. And I'm thinking, is that really what you, but the captain, the only thing he saved was a pair of jeans and his Bible. And, uh, and, mm. and the interesting part is that's what, as the ship was going down, he was the last one to come off. Uh, and, the, and we had worked it out. So I got in the water, I fought the waves. And as I got close to the vessel, uh, he was going to depart the ship and I was going to get a hold of him. Uh, and he went back mm. in the ship and, you know, you always hear about the captain's going to go down with the ship. And so I made my way over to yeah. the gunnel of the vessel, uh, and only to find out later that what he was doing is he was going in to get his Bible, uh, that had been in his family forever to bring it with him. You know, so that was, oh, wow. uh, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty impactful. And, you know, it wasn't super dramatic, but, you know, it was the first time, you know, you do something like that. And it was awesome. Dateline did a huge uh, piece on it, you know, so I got some, some TV time for the family, which was pretty neat to see. But yeah, you mm -hmm. know, so that was, that was rescue number one. I think the most impactful, um, we were stationed in Mobile during Hurricane Katrina, <clears throat> And that was something that we nobody was prepared for as far as 
uh, we were prepared mission wise, but as far as mentally, what you were getting ready to see and what, what you were getting ready to do, I don't think the Coast Guard had ever done a rescue on that scale, urban environments, the flooded environments like we saw Katrina. So being in Mobile, what was awesome on the standardization team, we have a rescue swimmer shop there, it had about 30 guys in it. So we knew we were going to be the last ones to go flying because we were the senior guys on station. And we literally were all flying. We chased the storm in Monday night as it came through. And uh, for about two and a half, three weeks later, you know, it was just just basically you fly for six, eight, ten hours. You go back and sleep and then you're right back at it. So, wow. I've heard I've, I've talked to a number of rescue swimmers. It seems like there were I mean, how many do you know how many swimmers were rolling? During so I Katrina and all? I think, yeah, I think at one point at the time, I want to say we didn't have, as far as Coast Guard wide, maybe 300 swimmers uh, in that ballpark. And I know um, about the end of the first week there in Mobile, I think we had about 130 of them on station. Wow. And that was just in Mobile. We still had air crews with swimmers coming out of Clearwater, Florida uh, daily. We had all the swimmers that were stationed uh, in New Orleans, the ones that were stationed in Houston. So, mm. yeah, there's probably the better part of two-thirds, I would say, of our fleet um, mm. took part in Katrina. And, and at that point in your career, you've already <laughs> been a swimmer for a while. Were you more aware at that point of, of kind of the, the way some of these rescues were affecting you, some of the things you were seeing, or were you just kind of toughing it out at that point? So I think at that point, you're still in that, you know, you're expected to be the standardization team, right? You're expected to be the standard. So you still have that, that type A, that leader, the I am the standard mentality, right? That, that I'm vulnerable. I have to have humility, but whatever we do, people are watching us because we're the stand team. And you, and you know how that is throughout the military, right? Sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes it's bad. And and a lot of times people mm -hmm. focus on you to say, well, wait a minute, this is how the stand guys were doing it. Um, as far as the impact for me with rescue stuff, you know, this was kind of a, I don't want to say a rest billet, but I, it took me out of the rescue scene, the standing duty. And we go to every air station throughout the year, throughout the Coast Guard, and we give them their evaluation. So you become more of an instructor. Mm -hmm. Uh, we teach our advanced rescue swimmer school out in, in Cape Disappointment with the cliff rescue and the cave rescue and the high sea stuff, big surf. Uh, so you're kind of in a different role. You know, you're not dealing with it daily, um, hmm. the ups and downs of that. And then Katrina just kind of flipped that up on, you know, flipped everything upside down because it took, it literally took everybody. The Coast Guard had, you know, I just remember our CO, you know, we had standards for flying, you know, every six hours. You know, you get you're in you're in the bag until you get somebody rest. And I just remember our captain at the time, Captain Callahan, getting everybody together, saying, "Go do what you do until you feel it's unsafe doing it." And it was awesome. And I think that's why the Coast Guard was so successful, is they allowed us to do our job that we had trained so many years to do, and it was just super successful. But you know, throughout those three weeks for me, there was many different man. You got to see, I mean, people's lives just destroyed. You know, it wasn't just exciting because you got to rescue people. I mean, you not only did you rescue people or cut them out of their roof of their house because these one story homes were filling up with water. Everybody's going to the attic and we had to we had to adapt in a way. First time I'd ever been deployed out of a helicopter with a chainsaw that was running with the brake on mm. so you could cut open the roof and get people out. And then you're dropping them off at a staging point, which was basically just an overpass with off ramps on a highway. And we saw how quickly that that filled up. So now you took people from the comfort of their home that was flooded 
And now you dropped them off in an area that people were getting robbed. People were getting all kinds of craziness, you know, in a criminal element because they're trying to get them out of there. It just didn't happen as quick as mm. we were bringing them. <clears throat> so it's almost like you're taking them from one tragedy to another, uh, mm. you know, and that's, that was, that was kind of weird. That was kind of crazy. And just to see and feel the impact on their face, you know, when you get them in the helicopter and they get to survey more than just their house, right. More than just your front yard. Mm. And you see the devastation is now as far as the eye can see, man. And just watching people's face was just, it takes a toll after a while, you know, you think as a rescue, you're doing great things. And we did no doubt about that, but you just, uh, when you see the toll it takes on humanity, man, that's a, that's a tough burden sometimes. Absolutely. I think that the combination Mm -hmm. you're, you're not only are you watching destruction on a regular basis, you're seeing death, you're seeing all these things, but then also you, you yourself are literally every time you drop from that helicopter, yeah. You're also facing death. You're facing danger on a regular basis. And I, I think we just don't give enough weight to that. Often we're just so caught up in the mission and, and what's yeah. going on to really put weight to like, man, this is this is hard <laughs> on you emotionally, spiritually. And I think it's tough, too, because, you know, for us to have our greatest day doing what we have do and trained to do has to be somebody else's worst day in their life. And, and it's, and it's, it became, as you get older and you do it more, it becomes tough to be super excited about rescuing people. Yes. You've saved lives. No doubt. I mean, there's nothing greater than that, but to realize that these people now they couldn't know, especially from Katrina, they have nothing. They might've lost family members or, or you can't get every, you know, not everybody gets saved or somebody washed away, you know? So you do end up wearing that impact that, you know, man, the greatest day in your life doing rescues happened to be the worst day for somebody else, you know? Right. Yeah. So then how long after Katrina did you transition to being a special agent? Yeah. So for me, so Katrina kicked off in 2005. Uh, and then I was due to transition out, uh, in 2007. So for us being an agent, it's kind of a special assignment. The Coast Guard's a little different than the other services with our criminal investigation, just because of our jurisdiction being under Homeland Security. Uh, so, you know, I applied for the special assignment and then uh, we were selected or I was selected um, to be an agent. Yeah. So that's uh, that was 2007 for me. Um, so came out of the operational rescue swimmer role into a completely different career change. And that was about year 16 of my career. So the hardest part, too, for us as in that ASM, AST, the rescue swimmer community is is promotion is tough because guys don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, the attrition rate, even at school, I mean, we just were not, we weren't rate critical back then because people just weren't getting out. So it took me to year 16 to even make E7, you know, to, to put on chief, which is kind of unheard of with all the other rates, you know, by then people are already chief, senior chief type thing, maybe even master chief. Um, so yeah, so year 16 and then, uh, yeah, lateraled over to be an agent and then, uh, and to the federal law enforcement training center for six months and, yeah, onto a whole different way of life. So, and that was like civilian clothes, facial hair, all that stuff. Yeah, right? that was that was this, and yeah. So <laughs> it went to uh, it transitioned a couple times depending on where you were and what you were doing. Uh, sometimes it was suit and tie. Other times you you know your jeans and a t shirt and dress like a bum, depending on on what the operational need was or what the cases you were working that day. And um, depending on who your supervisor or boss was, the uh, the facial hair was optional. Uh, you know, early on in my career, I remember trying to, uh, 
to go that route. And my boss was, she wasn't having it. And then, uh, I did, I did four years, uh, running the protection detail to protect the, the 24th commandant of the coast guard. And, uh, so there's definitely no beard in that one. Uh, that's a, that's a suit and tie, you know, uh, daily job as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And that was a job where you got to travel quite a bit, not, not on a boat, thankfully, but that's right. You did get to travel quite a bit. Um, yeah. you went to some pretty cool places. I did. So, you know, as an agent, we do not only the criminal investigative side, but on our protection side for our commandant and our dignitaries, anytime they go around the world, you know, we spin up a team and send them. So, uh, and then even on the commandant's detail, I got to travel every year we'd go around the world and he'd do visits at other countries and the whole deal. So yeah, some, I mean, just, I mean, we are Singapore and China and Malta, you know, and, and when you're with the commandant, you don't stay in horrible places. I'll just say that. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't, you don't get horrible cars and you don't get, you don't get stuck in traffic and you don't, you don't eat MREs and you don't stay in horrible places. I'll just say that. Right. Um, yeah. But no, it was, it was good. And then uh, as an agent, we traveled a lot. And then I was able to, uh, to take over the office uh, in the kingdom of Bahrain uh, for a year or so over there as independent duty myself and another agent. So yeah, definitely. Uh, pretty diverse careers, even as an agent Mm -hmm. moving around. So, yeah. Now the investigative piece though, kind of continued some of the, the heaviness that was already continuing from your rescue days, right? Yeah, it it did. Um, you know, and it's interesting, it's kind of like the whole, you know, the rescue swimmer part, I guess the theme for me is, you know, it was awesome that you're having a great day and you get to do these phenomenal things. Um, and it was great being involved in, in these cases, you know, these criminal investigations. I always um, I tried to stay away from the internal Coast Guard cases. I, I hated the, the military UCMJ. So as, as an agent with the Coast Guard, because of our federal authority, we also do cases outside of the military. So anywhere the Coast Guard has jurisdiction, whether it's on fishing boats in the water. So we can do anything from fisheries to to drug cases. Uh, we kind of have a unique skill set, which was nice. So if you didn't want to get stuck with the military stuff, you got stuck with, you know, you get, you can work outside crimes with the U S attorney, you know, for me early on was stuff dealing with whether it was, uh, sexual abuse as a kid or that type of trauma, I became very good at our sexual assault cases. And I think it's because I was able to show empathy and I didn't even realize it at the time. So for me over that 15 years of being an agent, you know, being the type A, being that the door kicker guy was great. Uh, where the toll became is when it's when you again, you started to see the effect on people's lives. Right. You started to see what they were going through daily and even how in the military, how we prosecute cases uh, a lot and the toll it, it took on people, you know, and it wasn't until probably the latter after about 10 years for me that I started realizing that. It's, this isn't just a case. It's not just a number, man. These are people that are damaged, you know, whether they're the ones perpetrating the crimes or whether they're the ones that the crimes are perpetrated against them. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. there's a re, you know, the psychological part of it, the damage. And then for me, um, it became real heavy, right? So then when you're, when you're an agent, the last thing you can do is go and say, hey, man, I have these disturbing thoughts. Hey, I'm struggling mm-hmm. to deal with this, you know, Hey, you're a guy that's been given a firearm and a certain authority, and you're supposed to to live up to that, you know. And so, for me, that just compounded it and just made it heavier mm. and heavier. Uh, mm. So yeah, that was that that was tough. As much as that job was, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the protection side of it. Uh, it became pretty tough the criminal investigation side there at the end. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so then, 
Enter ORW. So you, yeah. you're you're obviously in a pretty heavy place. You're kind of wrestling with what to do, honestly, with a lot of these things. Uh, what what kind of brought you to ORW, and what was that like for you when you came through your drop zone? Yeah, that's weird. The uh, another alumni is what brought me to ORW, and, and I'll use things like, "Man, that's weird. That's crazy." When I'm talking about Jesus, but I and I realize now I've had to transition to a word that's epic, because that's all it is. Um, you know, as a criminal investigator, we would have to do uh, annually. We'd go to this conference. It was Crimes Against Children. In, uh, in Dallas, Texas. And and it's just horrific. But it's a group study. You hear what other investigators are doing. Sometimes you hear from the victims. And so I think this was year three or four that I had gone through. And, you know, I had dealt with some stuff as a, as a kid, especially on that side of it, that I'd never told anybody. You know, I've been married at the, at the time. I think I was married 24, 25 years uh, to my beautiful wife, Teresa. I got three kids of my own. Um, <clears throat> I never told anybody. And and so it's still, it's, uh, I'll tell you these, when I get choked up now and emotional, I think it's, it's not the pain anymore, man. It's the freedom that's in talking about my story. So that's the the beauty of it. So sometimes when I get a little weird or mushy or I water the beard, as I like to say, it's, it's because <laughs> of the, the freedom I think that Jesus yes. has given me. Um, but my wife and I were talking one day and she was like, I don't know how people can, can do that. And I said, well, let me tell you what happened. And it just came out. So the Lord provided an avenue that was, was awesome. And, and, you know, I remember she, she made a comment to me that said, Hey, had you, you know, had you said this a few years earlier, I don't know that I would have been spiritually mature enough to handle it. Um, yeah. So that was the catalyst for me to, to find help. Um, and as an investigator, I ran into another, an alumni we have, uh, who had experienced something similar and, and he had just said, Hey, how do I find out about this? And told me what happened. And I'd never told man. So at that point I've told one person who was my wife. And, and I said, well, let me tell you what happened to me. And so he said, man, you have to go to this program, this operation restored warrior. And so I talked to my wife about it and she was like, man, you got to go. And uh, so reluctantly uh, I put in for it, you know, thinking that, man, I was in the coast guard. I don't, there's other people that need it way more than me. You know what we do, right? It's other people need it uh, more than myself. So I uh, got, got set up for a drop zone. And even till uh, I went out to uh, 7W in Colorado, but for me, David, even until I rolled up in the door first night at dinner at the ranch, I had convinced myself that I was going to take the other five men to their drop zone, that I was still mm -hmm. just the, the protective detail guy getting these guys on point uh, where they needed to go. And it's funny, our drop zone, we had a, uh, we had a code word because we were going to, if, uh, we joked about, we get there and there's no crying, there's no holding hands. And if somebody said pineapple juice, we were out. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so, uh, there was a tough question. I believe Paul asked that first night. It wasn't a tough question, but he asked a question and somebody asked to, to pass the pineapple juice and we were getting ready to get up off the X and, Paul called us out, man. And that just, that just released everything. The ability to just, mm -hmm. man, receive what happens at ORW drop zone. Just mm -hmm. so phenomenal. So, man, I fought it like many guys do. I think every time I talk to an alumni, it's kind of the same thing, right? Whether it's we don't want to reveal what's truly going on with us or whether we still don't feel worthy or whatever it is that guys feel, man, we've all felt it. And, uh, mm -hmm. but, but as you know, man, five days later, leaving that mountain was a totally different man than, than driving up. So. Yeah. Yeah. And for our listeners, you can catch a good glimpse into his drop zone 
on the Kingdom Life series on mm-hmm. TBN. You can the first episode. Now I'm going to forget the title, uh, but it's incredible little window into our Drop Zone program. And John gave them permission yeah. to kind of follow him around um, during that time. So then moving forward, so you come, you hit this drop zone, like you feel the freedom of releasing everything and just like, oh, that's incredible. Then what? Yeah. So a lot of times it's hard to transition from that. It, it was, um, you know, and coming back, I had I had been a Christian a long time, uh, but didn't really know what that meant. Uh, so I had a solid church foundation here. Uh, my wife is just phenomenally um her walk with the Lord is great. So hmm. I was very, very blessed in that, but I still didn't know what it looked like to walk this out and what to do. And so one of the things for me that we took very serious is when when I told God I would do this, I meant it. And so I was about a year out uh, from, from retiring. So I went in the September or July of 2020 is when I did my drop zone. Uh, and so I just said, Jesus, whatever you would have me do, let's do it. And so uh, we came out. This was during the time COVID was going on. So what started is um, every week after my drop zone, um, the other five guys and we Zoomed every week. And so I started doing a Zoom where we would check in and, man, what's going on in your life? And how are you being attacked? And how are we fighting this? And we would go over scripture and we do Bible lessons. And till today, we still meet at least once or twice a month, that group of just that core group of six, you know, and that's, we're going on two years. And so that was huge for me. Um, and I think the other guys in my group as well, cause I don't, I, I know a lot of times you hear guys say, Hey man, I became disconnected or whatnot, but man, we were so, um, the beautiful part of it is we had, we'd experienced something together. So there was still a freedom, man, to speak about the struggle. There was still the ability to say, man, this is what I'm dealing with. There's no more shame or fear with this group of people. Even if I couldn't release everything here at home or to folks in my church, man, there was a, there was a, a, I don't know, man, it was just a comfort, as you know, with, with these guys. And so for me, what's happened, um, so uh, coming up out of two years of it is we did that drop zone and then we started getting other alumni in there and it started one or two, three alumni. And then we got to a group of probably about 11 um, alumni. And then, um, the gentleman that filmed, uh, it was that prophecy episode that you were just speaking about, uh, mm-hmm. on TBN, him and I got to talking and he wanted to start kind of an online church for guys that didn't know how to go or didn't want to go to the brick and mortar. And we had talked about it. And I said, well, man, you should go through the drop zone before we do this. And so, Long story short, now we do, it's, uh, we call it Compass Community. It's on Sunday nights and it's for alumni and it's a Zoom meeting every week. And man, we talk about scripture. We talk about Bible verses. We talk about life and what we're doing, the authority and power we have in Jesus. And uh, I think if everybody was to show up, I think there's 36, 38, you know, uh, people that get the email every week that comes out, you know, so some weeks we get, you know, you'll get six or seven guys that show up and other weeks you have. 16 people. It's just, it's been phenomenal. So for me too, um, you know, coming back, it's awesome how the Lord works. Um, when I talk about the criminal investigative side, when you make yourself available to Jesus, all I can say is just hold on because it's a ride like, like nothing else. And one of the things that he's allowed me to do is even go to the local brig here where I used to have to take guys for cases and allow me to teach a Bible study and do a Bible study in the brig. So the mm-hmm. chaplain goes to my church and he'd asked me to come out one night at, at uh, for Christmas Eve, man. And I just, my heart just broke 
for these men. Mm. And, uh, and I think we've actually, it's awesome, man. The Lord's, I love how he uses the scars from your story because I was able to share some of those there. And I think we've even had a couple of guys that have been released from the brig actually come through ORW as well. And Mm -hmm. so it's, it's just so phenomenal, David, to see, um, man, he takes everything and there's a reason for everything you've gone through. Mm -hmm. So for me in my life, man, all the the bad stuff, the the troubled times, man, it's so awesome how God is using that for his glory. So, Yeah, it's been good. That's, so that's incredible. That's so good. There's two things that that really strike me as you're talking there. Number one, the 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 brotherhood, the camaraderie that comes yeah. out of ORW. Number one, there's there's that shared language of just being in the military. So many yeah. guys that get out of the military and it's like you try to engage with civilians, they have no idea what you're talking about. So there's that that shared brotherhood and language there, but then also the ORW alumni, the shared language of having yeah. gone through that same process. And I think that is such a huge piece moving forward in any, any situation like yes, ORW, but in general, yeah, whatever you're going through in your life, whatever ministries you're involved with, it is so crucial for us to have, you know, as men, good men around us, as women, good women yes. around us that are, that are able to call us out and hold us up and support us and, and keep us accountable that's a huge part of our success moving forward is, is that. And I think what you and Shane are doing over there is just incredible with that community. And we're actually going to do a, another episode soon just to kind of introduce you to Shane as well and, and to what they're doing. So looking forward to sharing that because what you guys are doing over there is awesome, awesome. And it's been growing, growing a lot. And, and I think that's a powerful tool for the guys for alumni to be able to look and go, okay, here's a group I can jump in here. And, you know, even if you're going to church, there's just a special, there's a special bond between, between those guys in that group. Well, and I, um, I think what's yeah. awesome about that too, David, is not even uh, just Shane and I kind of heading it up, but you know, there's been nights when other guys want to give their testimony or talk about what's on their heart. And it is so impactful for these guys to even, you know, uh, to share that amongst that group, right. To have that, mm. that safe place, right. Not to use that word, but to have that area where you're so comfortable yeah. But and that's the beautiful thing, right? It's not just me teaching it. It's not just Shane, man. If guys want to talk about what's going on in their lives, right? How do we pray for you? If you want to talk about things that Jesus has done for you, I mean, it's awesome. And so accountability is the biggest thing, right? That's what it's all about for us is staying accountable to somebody that's going to hold you accountable that that when you do fall off the X, because it happens that somebody calls you up and says, all right, man, let's go just like in the military community. Right. I think when we go out to our churches, the hard part is some of them are really good at dealing with veterans and some don't, right. They want to use you on veterans day. They want to use you on Memorial day. And, and it's tough because they, we still feel like, well, I'll say, I, I still felt like I had to uphold this image, right. This type a, this Mm -hmm. military, this agent, anything happens at church call John, Man, and and we just it's it's tough because they don't see sometimes trying to heal from the brokenness, you know, and and it, mm-hmm. and it's an ongoing process. I think that's the beautiful thing that people need to see is we re- we receive the freedom, we receive that restoration at ORW, but man, it is so crucial how we walk it out. You know, yes. it's like going to boot camp. Just because you went to boot camp doesn't mean you're going to be the best infantryman ever, right? Doesn't mean you're yeah. going to be the best rescue swimmer. You have to continue to train and do it. So. That, that's been the biggest thing for me. And just, man, believing in the power and authority in your faith that Jesus has given you. Um, and that's yeah. been the big thing for me is I, to- I gave him my word that I would I would go to where he called me. And so, uh, you know, for, for me, um, 
I had a whole plan what I was going to do when I retired, where I was going to work, what I was going to do. And uh, man, to be able to even be a facilitator now and, and part of the team with ORW was something that only only Jesus could have provided that, man. And uh, yeah. it, it is such a phenomenal opportunity for me just to to meet these men and invest in their lives and show them what Jesus has done to us. So just mm-hmm. so grateful, David. So grateful. Yeah. Well, John, it was great having you on the show. It's it's a pleasure to be on the team with you. I enjoy, yes, sir. enjoy everything with you. And for our audience out there, make sure that you are subscribed, that you got your notifications turned on. We're, we're pu- publishing weekly. And while you're at it, if you enjoy the show, make sure you leave a rating and review. Uh, leaving that rating actually does make a difference in our visibility on the platforms. So if you're enjoying that, please do that. And then if you have a question, a comment, or maybe you're an alum and you would love to share your story on the show, reach out, podcast at operationrestoredwarrior.org. That's how you can reach us specifically with the podcast. Uh, We're just so grateful for all of you that are out there listening. Let us know what you think of the show. John, thank you again for joining me. Thank you for the opportunity, David. Absolutely. It's an honor. And for you out there, until next time, stay dangerous. Well, thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Operation Restored Warrior podcast. I want to remind you to go check out our website at www.operationrestoredwarrior.org. When you get to the home page, you're going to see two tabs. One says, I'm a veteran. That's where you want to click if you want to apply to attend one of our life-changing drop zones. The other tab says support. And this is where if you believe in the mission of ORW and you want to continue to see lives changed by Jesus, click here and you'll find ways to partner with us as we continue this mission. Thanks again. And until next time, stay dangerous.